Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Laura Payton. Jesse Brown. Senior writer for McLean's. That's right. Formerly of CBC, recently formerly of CBC, and former president of the Parliamentary Press Gallery. For my sins. Welcome to Canada Land Shortcuts, recording live to tape from Ottawa. This episode of Canada Land Shortcuts is brought to you by Simon Nakanechny, Rachel E. Beattie, Jessica Black, Sean Hayward, Jane Wilson, Jonathan Ross, Zach Seismograph, Emma Grand, and Jonathan Swanger. Jonathan, why did you decide to be awesome? Because Canada Land provides an independent voice. If we are to cultivate an engaged citizenry that possesses the tools and perspectives to ask sharper questions, then we desperately need as many informed sources of information as possible. It's also brought to you by FreshBooks. Laura, you've been gainfully employed by real grown-up media organizations. But I did freelance for uh, less than a year. You did? I did, and it was really, really hard, and so <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not good at it. Well, one thing that makes it easier, uh, and anyone who is doing it or who is running any kind of a private enterprise uh, should know, is, is FreshBooks.com, which saves you time every week when you do your billing, which makes sure that you get paid quicker and lets you see when people actually look at your invoices, makes you look good. The mobile app is fantastic. The expense reporting is simple and easy. And uh, I can't say enough good things about it. So go to freshbooks.com, use it for free for 30 days, 
And when you do decide to become a customer, tell them that Canada Land sent you and you will be doing the show a favor. Fresh books, cloud accounting, painless billing. Check it out. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Your former lawyer said that Ray Novak knew about the Duffy deal. Once again, I am not going to cherry-pick of facts that are in dispute before a court. I'm actually interested in why this is the first uh, power and politics panel we've ever had on this. I've no, ever it been isn't. In, well, I, 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 Mr. Alexander, that, that, that's completely no. false, and I can send you links to the previous shows that we've discussed about this. We're discussing it during an election campaign because there's a crisis situation going on in Europe right now. But if you'd like this me to send those to you, I can because you've been on the show previously and discussed it. The longest election campaign in modern Canadian history has begun. I'm Paul Wells, the political editor of Maclean's magazine. We've established the NDP have been in the lead for weeks, months now, I guess, at this point. The NDP has a very thin lead in the polls. The Liberal message is gaining traction with Canadian voters, at least according to our latest poll. Canada has been hit by a red wave. Justin Trudeau will be your next prime minister. Laura, morning after the morning after? Yeah. The results are in... How did the various parties do? And, and I mean the media parties. <laughs> the media parties. How did the media um, parties do? Who's up? Who's down? I feel obliged to say that McLean's did very well. I Honestly, though, I, I feel like our coverage was really good. McLean's is up big, I think, from the debate. And, and I think Wells did a good job, and it was the first one. You know, I mean, that, I think, I can objectively confirm that. Excellent. That's good. Yeah. No, I mean... It's always hard because sometimes, especially toward the end, you're so in the middle of it. Um, I was trying to read my colleagues' coverage, and I know I didn't get to all of it. Um, I will say that 
especially the past couple of days, the coverage on the implosion of the Conservative Party has been really fascinating. And I think that already people are doing really good journalism, figuring out what was going on. And, um, you know, especially because with, with the Conservative Party in particular, it's hard to get the inside account mm-hmm. because they don't really like to talk. Mm-hmm. Although right now it's easier because everyone wants to give their take on what happened. This is sort of a separate thing, but I think that it's all going to come out now. Am I right in that? I kind of feel like that it was held together by fear for so long and sort of what happened with the campaign might only be the beginning of what we learn. Yeah, I suspect so. I have a, a friend in the party who says, uh, with Stephen Harper, the feeling was always like, yeah, he's a son of a bitch, but he's our son of a bitch. And he was a winning son of a bitch. And I think now that um, that isn't the case, people are a lot more likely to pull out the knives and talk to their favorite reporters. That's sort of exciting and terrifying. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> they might actually be seen out with us having a coffee for once. Right. A new day has dawned. Yeah. Um, who else? Um, Globe and Mail, up or down? Globe and Mail is a good paper. They're a little bit strapped, I think, because they're down two in their bureau, right? They lost a couple of people uh, over the spring and summer, and so they don't have as many Ottawa people as they did before. Yeah, but that's not really what did it. It's the bizarre endorsement. That was a surprise, or maybe not a surprise. I mean, here's the thing, Jesse. I don't know about you. I don't read a lot of op-eds and editorials because I feel like I can... I'd rather know the facts of a situation, so I read the news reporting. Yeah. Um, I don't know how many Canadians do, because I don't see numbers um, on editorial pages or op-eds. I guess a lot of people weren't surprised by that endorsement because of the 2011 endorsement. Oh, I don't mean that they endorsed the Conservatives. Being oh, the, the, weir- the weirdness on the I minority. Think if, yeah, if you had to figure out how to get people to pay attention to a very predictable Globe and Mail Harper endorsement, you would do something bizarre like endorse the Conservatives but not endorse Harper. And if you wanted to spawn... A hashtag, which they they did, and you know Stephen Marsh, I think, kicked that off. You would do exactly what they did. Yeah, like I understand the criticism because obviously that was not in any way a choice for anyone outside of the Calgary Heritage riding. Yeah, but at the same time, I don't know that editorial endorsements are all that useful anyway. So it kind of didn't offend me, I think, to the same extent that it offended a lot of people. I didn't feel offended by it. I, I just am trying to kind of make sense of it. Like I said, the Globe. Bizarrely endorsed the conservatives um, and said, but but not Harper. Harper's got to go, as if that's something that we could actually vote for. And this led to widespread mockery with the hashtag other Globe endorsements, uh, cheeseburger without the cheese, the Globe without the mail, and so on and so forth. This is a criticism that I would make of Post Media and the Globe. To whatever extent, I, I guess it depends on what we think of a newspaper as doing. Like, is it representing the readers? In that case, it failed completely because it was just completely out of touch with what everybody chose. So then it gets to this other kind of question of if, if this is what you should be doing, not what we think you want to do, but what we, the editorial board, say is in your best interest, then it almost suggests a different relationship between newspapers. It's like the public's incredibly stupid and doesn't know what's good for them, and the papers keep telling them, no, 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 you made the wrong choice. Where does that leave everybody when it's all said and done? Because it feels like there's a greater disconnect between these papers and and the public that they serve. But I think that gets back to my question of, I don't know how many people go to a newspaper editorial to tell them how to vote. I think most people will talk to their friends and their family and they'll make up their own minds. Um, So I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it was well, it was well written. I'll say that. Yeah. It feels to me like what you would write if you were, if you were like forced, but both the post media's endorsements and like, if you were like, I don't want to write a pro-conservative editorial here, but I, 
I, I understand that the owners make this call and I have no choice. You would find some weird way. I only read the Ottawa Citizen one and that one in particular, especially the way it started off, I thought it was going to be satirical because it started off saying something about, you know, uh, despite the long campaign, which everyone thought would lead to vitriol and, and hatred, it was quite rational and, you know, enlightening. And I thought, oh, well, that. It, the rest is clearly going to be satire. Were you here where we were? Were you at the same? I think the one I read was something like, by any measure, this has been an excellent campaign. It almost felt to me like in like a ransom video where you want to like signal to, yeah, you know, exactly. it's like, honey, I'm safe. And as you know, our kid's teddy bear is named Elliot when everyone knows that it's actually named David. And that's how you let it, you know, yeah. that you're somehow communicating some wink, wink, nudge, nudge thing. And somebody actually, it's not a journalist, but somebody on Twitter just tweeted back to me and said, oh, it sounds like they were forced. When I saw Paula Simon's tweets at the, from the Edmonton Journal saying that it had been the owners who decided who the papers had to endorse, then that made a little more sense to me. Yeah, more of a ransom note than, a, than an endorsement. And then I think like, I've heard different differing things on this, but I can tell you that anybody who's following along, you know, uh, social media reaction, the fact that all the post media papers had a full page cover advertisement from the conservatives on uh, was it the Sunday? The Saturday. On the Saturday, of course. On the Saturday, I think appalled a lot of people, and I know people within post media. Oh, it's no big deal. We've sold wraps before. Well, I don't know if people in post media were saying that. I think. Some people were saying, well, like the journalists don't control the ad sales. Yes. And they don't. They have nothing to do with it. And in fact, in the papers, it's, it's quite properly kept separate. Well, we're always making these distinctions amongst ourselves. But I think to the public, it's like, what, what is this thing? What is this newspaper? What is it telling me? It's got ads. It's got editorials. It's got news. Editorials are telling you that you should vote conservative. And the ads are, which are like, they're deceptive. I mean, it's, that, was, that ad was formatted to look like an official Elections Canada ballot. And, you know, you can't afford the liberals. Like, you're deceiving in two different ways. It's the front page of the newspaper, which on any other day is not an ad. And then it's formatted deceptively. And that's what you're getting from the front page. And inside there's the endorsement. And then we know at, at the National Post they wouldn't print Andrew Coyne making a different endorsement. So when that same message is echoed through and through, I don't know how much your reader cares about what your average reporter had to say. When in fact, I think that most people working at the papers would not have endorsed the conservatives. I don't know who they would have endorsed, but certainly I think the coverage was really fair. And I in particular felt for the people at the Ottawa Citizen, because of course, Ottawa is a city of civil servants. And the paper has been really great about reporting on all of the um, sort of barrage of um, problems that the civil service have had with the conservatives. And so I, I worried in particular about re the citizen readers and how many they would lose over something, over the endorsement more than the advertising. Were you hearing that kind of stuff from people there? Well, I, I mean, I saw it on Twitter and it's hard to know how representative Twitter is of the general public. Yeah. Um, but I've certainly heard from civil servants that, uh, they would not have endorsed the conservatives. And so I don't know if, whether they, would forgive the citizen for that because they know that the journalists are doing a good job or whether they would just cancel because they're so mad at post media that um, it didn't matter to them what the journalists were doing. What about the CBC? I mean, this is... Uh, I knew this would come up. We're okay. supposed to talk about the election. We're, this is a media criticism show. We're, we are talking about the election. And I think that this election has had big consequences for, you know, things are not the same as they were beforehand. This is when the public needs the Canadian media the most and how the different organizations comport themselves. I think, I think it does... It shakes out differently for different organizations. And I think the CBC has traditionally been the hub 
for a Canadian federal election. Was it this time? Yeah, I think it still is. I mean, I should be clear that for the first four weeks of the election campaign, I was a CBC writer covering (laughs) Parliament Hill and the election. Too soon, too soon. (laughs) So, yes, in fact, I think that at least four weeks of that coverage was was There was a glorious four weeks. Yeah. Um, Not to keep harping on the debates, but, you know, it's just how do you avoid talking about the absence of the catalyzing central event where CBC, you know, really would played a role in every other election and that I can remember. That absence was conspicuous and it was, um, they were going to be absent to a certain degree, not by their own choice. But how did that shake out once it's all said and done? Well, listen, for sure, I think readers and viewers and listeners might not distinguish between management and journalists, but... I think that the journalists there did an amazing job. And Can we just agree that all the journalists did a wonderful job covering the election everywhere? And uh, everyone's great, but let's talk about <laughs> when you look at the macro level of the actual news orgs, choices get made, right? Yeah. And I mean, I'm not in on the consortium discussions, obviously. I know that, um, you know, I've heard in the past that sometimes CBC gets blamed for some of the decisions the consortium makes as a whole. And let's not forget that. This year in particular, when you talk about timing of the events, normally CBC would have to worry about preempting hockey. That wasn't a concern this year. And the other broadcasters uh, might be worried about preempting, like, I don't know, pick an American show, CSI or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. So, so sometimes I think the CBC got blamed for, for timing decisions that may not actually have been as much about CBC as the other broadcasters. But again, that's stuff that I hear like third or fourth hand because I'm so, I'm so far removed from any of those conversations. I kept hearing things about from readers, listeners, and just, you know, social media, media reactions that there was a sense of distrust in in mainstream media, at least maybe that gets voiced every time, but maybe we're not giving the media enough credit. What were the scoops of the campaign from your perspective who really distinguished themselves? The Canadian press is uh, maybe not well-known because their stuff runs in other papers and websites, but Jordan Press has been doing great work, especially since he got there. He was good at Post Media, and he's, I think, even better at the Canadian Press. Uh, I don't know. What do you think were some of the scoops of the campaign? Wow, I don't know. Like, I think that though it was flawed, Terry Glavin's work on the Curdy story, and it got politicized. I mean, and I've never really been in the middle of things before to see how there's no such thing as an apolitical piece of even reporting. You know, that was a breaking news story where Glavin found out that Alan Curdy's family was trying to get into Canada. And, you know, breaking news often broken. There were there was a language barrier. People were in mourning. And there were some incidental details about whether it was, in fact, his parents or his uncle or what the actual strategy was. Of course, it, it's ultimately, I think, of no great significance. The family was trying to come to Canada. All of those refugees had been put on hold, and the file of that family specifically passed through Chris Alexander's desk. So I think that was an incredible story, and you know, I, I think that there were some problems with how it, the accountability of the problems with that story, rather than print a clarification or a correction, there was sort of a follow-up uh, that made it, it sort of fed into the politicization that this was all a bunch of lies. But that was an incredible story, and he found, he got that story very early. Yeah, some of the criticism about that actually bothered me because I saw a lot of people saying, oh, you shouldn't use anonymous sources. This is what happens. People get things wrong. But all the media outlets had named sources, which were the family members who were quite understandably in mourning and probably not entirely clear in their interviews. But I didn't see a single news story that 
while they got it wrong, they, I didn't see a single one that didn't have a family member as a source or somebody credible who you would have taken at their word what exactly had happened. Yeah, no, I think that that deserves a lot of credit, that reporting. And I don't know if that felt like a turning point in a number of ways. I mean, there, there's- it, it felt like it, but then two weeks later, it wasn't, you know, I think people kind of had moved on. Do you think so? I, I, I don't know. I, I guess there's a lot of uh, hand about how you actually measure these things. But I think that, that to what extent did the conservative voter and not your sort of like granite hard base voter, but somebody who for whom these things matter to some degree and you kind of reach. I mean, I, I sense that with Ford in Toronto at a certain point, a lot of people said, look, I don't care about this whole circus. Um, there are reasons why I'm voting for him. And then at a certain point, the circus just became so overwhelming. I think the moral issues with the Harper administration, a lot of people are like, I don't care. You, you haven't actually gotten through to me. And then there's, I felt like there was a tipping point there. Uh, yeah, I, I think the tipping point was even before the election. I mean, nine years in office, people are, that seems to be the best before date in politics. And yeah. I went out just for a few hours with a couple of uh, Toronto candidates to do some door knocking. So, you know, keeping in mind it's in Toronto, which is not exactly a, a friendly zone for the conservatives and keeping in mind it was only a couple of hours. I did hear the comments that we're now seeing people talking about from the conservative campaign, which is that going out door knocking, they heard, yeah, we like your policies, but we don't like Stephen Harper. And I I'd heard that when I was out with the liberal candidates. Yeah. So I think that, you know, and they're saying this now too, it had as much to do with uh, Stephen Harper not being a very likable person and having had nine years of policies that people could measure him against. But but I guess it's a, it's a worth asking how much of it, I mean, a scoop is something that we learn, that we discover, that the media brings to the conversation. How much of this was stuff that external forces, you know, be it the, 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 the Niqab ruling, be it the Duffy trial. I mean, th- th- those weren't scoops. I mean, that was ori- originally a scoop, but uh, it, throughout the campaign, these things were kind of like, of course we we're going to cover that stuff. Well, but I don't know if an election is necessarily about scoops. I think it's the time when you, you do measure the parties, you look at their platforms. And I think a lot of media outlets did this. They, they were really carefully going through the platforms and comparing the different measures. We certainly did a whole lot of issue primers. Um, one in, that stands out for me was the healthcare primer, where uh, when you stacked up the platforms together, the conservatives had like Oh, $100,000 for Brain Canada, which is an organization that does research um, or, you know, like like really niche things. And then the liberals had, well, we'll renegotiate with the provinces. And then the NDP had this really extensive health platform. And the Greens had sort of in between the liberals and the NDP, they had some measures. Um, so and I think that that's when you look at those things and you say, OK, if health matters to you, take a look see what you think. If you think it's a provincial issue and the feds shouldn't meddle, then maybe the NDP aren't for you. If you want more planning from the feds, maybe then yeah. they are for you. And and those are the kinds of things that, that that's really important journalism and nobody like gets credit for that stuff. Yeah. It's not sexy. No. It's, it's not like a scoop, but it's, it's the meat and potatoes of it. It's, it's the, just the due diligence. And it's like nowhere else is, I think the, the, the value well, learning stuff that the public would otherwise not know is, got, is pretty big value add. But just going through the platforms, going through the policies and decoding things and fact checking things, I think, is just what we're here for. And that got done to varying degrees. And I remember we, we talked on this program before about some of the candidate vetting that happened not by mainstream media, but yeah. through social media. It was interesting to me because 
I remember last time when all those new NDP candidates, you know, surprisingly got into office. And then, and then when that happened in the provincial election in Alberta, I heard a lot of blowback about how the media, you know, didn't do their job in vetting the candidates beforehand. And this time, bloggers did that work. And I heard a lot of reporters saying, oh, who cares about those things? Who cares about what that person said on? Who said that? I'm not going to, uh, there's, I, I have a, a particular private conversation in mind. <laughs> oh, cause I, I saw a lot of reporters picking up those stories. Yeah. Well that happens too. I think not without the, those th- two things are not necessarily mutually exclusive, but I, I guess I heard both things. I mean, everybody was interested in those stories and at the same time. I did catch a lot of like, come on enough already. Everybody said dumb stuff on Facebook. Well, even the blogger, and I'm sorry, I don't know how to pronounce his name, but Robert Jago. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. Uh, who did. I don't know, half of the, if not three quarters of that work. He even said at one point, like, oh, come on, you really fired this candidate over that? Like, I just wanted people to know what he was about. I didn't want you guys to fire him. That was stupid. What have I done? Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, it wasn't what have I done. It was like, you guys are overreacting. Yeah. Okay. So if endorsements don't compel people to vote one way or the other, does the media actually have the ability to push votes from one party to the next at all? And I'm thinking specifically here about in an election like this, where the distinction for a lot of voters between, do I like the NDP better than the Liberals? Do I like Mulcair better than Trudeau? Which policy between those two parties do I like better? Those distinctions was maybe a 5% variable for some voters. And the bottom line fact of, I want Harper out, and how can I do that? I think we could say that that was a much stronger motivating force. And so looking to the media just for instructions... I think at a certain point, the instruction you got was vote for the liberals. Why would you say that? Well, it's a chicken and egg thing because the polls started to indicate that the NDP was slipping. And then the stories were about more than just the NDP slipping, though that was covered extensively. And you can kind of back away from the story. Hey, look, we're just reporting on a poll. Numbers, folks. But that seemed to spawn so much reporting and editorializing about how the NDP screwed things up, about how the atmosphere has shifted, about how the change party has shifted. And I, it's not something that I think I want to suggest the media can be blamed for, because of course, it is just a fact that Mulcair allowed himself to be outflanked on the left uh, when it came to the de- uh, running deficits. But I sensed a bit of a pile on. And I wonder what you think about that. I think like you said, part of it was being outflanked on the left and just talking to liberals. Um, they seem to feel like when the NDP talked about change, their guy doesn't look like change from Stephen Harper. There's a period when Mulcair was the front runner where there were many more headlines about his policies. There were many more the, the where in the paper his policy announcements got covered. You know, the Pharmacare announcement, which, which might have been a very big deal, and instead, it felt like it got a little bit buried. And l- fewer of those stories about where he is and what he's doing and what he's saying, and more horse racy stories about, oh my God, he screwed it up. And, and look, it's down more, it's down more and down more. And, you know, and then we got on that, you know, whether he was right or wrong, he's paying big time for his stance on the niqab, 
which it now seems like there's reason to believe that might not be true at all. Yeah, uh, at the lunch I was just at with the presentation from Greg Lyle from Innovative Research Group, uh, which I think you're probably referring to. Yeah. Um, he was presenting polling that showed that at least in Quebec, when the niqab issue came up, it seemed to not shift NDP voters to the bloc. Their voters seemed to stay the same, but it seemed to shift undecideds. There were, I think, if I remember the, from the slide, there was about 23% in Quebec undecided. And then that changed about 10 percentage points. Um, and all of those voters went to the block. And then the polling suggested that uh, the, some of the NDP voters started to move to the Liberals bec- when the uh, middle class sort of tax initiatives started breaking through. So how many times did we hear during this campaign He's losing Quebec because the Nakab. Oh, and I've said it. So (laughs) I feel like an idiot, (laughs) which shows you that it's hard to be a, you know, a strategist when you're a journalist. Right, right. I mean, but like what I'm getting at is uh, to what degree, like we become part of the story when we do the horse race stuff. And that actually is having an impact on just at least a strategic voter. Just where am I going to put my vote to get rid of Harper if that's what people want? And a lot of them, most of them did. When do we become part of the story? When do we become an influencer ourselves? And like, to what degree is it okay for us now to kind of hold you and me and everybody, everybody who kind of glommed onto those aspects of the story responsible and saying, well, maybe we missed the plot here. Maybe people, you know, like, do do you step aside and let things organically go where they are? But there is an appetite for this strategy talk. Yeah, and people read the poll stories, and there's a lot of polling companies out there. It's really competitive. So they all want to be associated with a media company during an election because it's really good coverage for them. And what's that looking like now? You've probably looked closer than I have. I mean, nobody was, except for Forum maybe, was calling for what we got. How off were the polls? Well, Main Street which I think is relatively new for this election, Main Street had actually projected a liberal majority like a week before the election. And when you look at the numbers, they were all pretty close. The final polls that came out Sunday night were pretty close. Like Nanos, I think, nailed within half a percentage point most of the popular votes. Is that votes. what we ultimately judge them by, their last poll? So all the polling they did beforehand, which completely sways. I mean, reporters just go whatever way the poll but is we going, we write about it. We have nothing to compare it to except for the last poll, right? Because it's not like everybody's voting halfway through the campaign. So you don't know. They could be right, they could be wrong halfway through the campaign. No, we got to poll campaign. the polls. We got to aggregate the polls together and we got to see who was... Because you don't know, because the polls are, you're right, because it's a projection from the start. You need to actually have a vote every week. To yeah, you have to actually go to Canadians and have them all cast ballots to be able to compare it. And so that's why we use the very last poll to judge how accurate they were. I tweeted when uh, the Atlantic provinces were being called. Well, it looks like it's going to be a liberal majority. Do, do, <laughs> do, am, I, am I one of the uh, best pollsters? Does, this that, does that count for your election pool? Because yeah, no, my picks it. had to be in a day before that. <laughs> how did you do? Not well. Actually, I didn't do too badly. I think I had about a 75% accuracy. And in my pool, we pick uh, every single riding. We pick the winner. I am so depressed by what you're telling me right now. Not that you lost your poll, but like from what you're telling me there, we, we cannot hold the polls accountable at all for everything they were telling us the whole way through. And yet it wasn't very long ago that we were just completely reactive to whatever they were telling us on any given day. And there's no accountability for that. I'm trying to think how how you can do that. I mean, the parties have their own internal polls, right? So the parties also have a sense of what's going on at any given time. Um, and the conservatives are now saying they, they knew for a couple of weeks, for example. So it sounds like um, 
those polls reflected what the the media's polls were saying. Uh huh. Is the takeaway here that maybe we should like ignore them more? Like that we should talk more about the issues and the policies than I always think we should talk more about the issues and the policies. <laughs> Laura Payton, thank you very much. What's your Canadaland shortcuts? I hope you enjoyed it. You can email me always at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read them all and I respond when I can. I'm on Twitter at Jesse Brown. Laura, where can people find you? Laura underscore Peyton on Twitter. Our website is canadalandshow.com. The crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash canadaland. This show is produced by Katie Jensen and the next episode of Canadaland will be up on Monday. If you like this show, please support it. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you.